Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A whisper of mystery turns all eyes to the throne. Suddenly two or three run, others fall back. Some talk, direct, hurry, stand still or disappear. Then three or four of high rank appear from behind the throne. An interval is left. The crowd scarce breathe. Something rustles. And a being buried in satin, feathers and diamonds rolls gracefully into his seat. The room rises with a sort of feathered, silken thunder. Plumes wave, eyes sparkle, glasses are out, mouths smile, and one man becomes the prime object of attraction to thousands. The way in which the king bowed was monarchic. As he looked towards the peeresses and foreign ambassadors, he looked like some gorgeous bird of the east. So that, Dominic, was a description by the painter Benjamin Robert Hayden of George the Fourth entering Westminster Abbey for his people coronation <laughs> with very much an emphasis on the rolling yes because he was um he was a very large gentleman wasn't he he was a ma- he was a man of size and i've i've read that from um roy strong's book coronation a history of Con- kingship and the british monarchy and it actually has george the 4th on the cover and he's got a train i think he's wearing a kind of cloak modelled on napoleon's yeah only designed to be even bigger and better and there are eight people carrying it his coronation was an absolutely splendid occasion, Tom. <laughs> it was simultaneously <laughs> vulgar and shambolic, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> and incredibly, incredibly expensive. Yes. <laughs> so all themes um, that we will be exploring over this, the final episode of our tour through coronations. Um, and in the, the second episode, we finished with um, The Last of the Stuarts, Anne dying. And she is succeeded by George I, who, is the, um, who comes from Hanover, yeah. And he's chosen basically for one reason and one reason only, namely that he's not Catholic. Exactly. He's a Protestant. So he doesn't really even speak English, which, as we shall see, um, leads to complications. Leads to complications at the coronation. So in that very first episode, Tom, you did that brilliant bit of historical kind of detective work, uncovering the sort of Christian roots, the roots in the Old Testament, paganism, Anglo-Saxon kings, the Carolingians, Charlemagne. And, you know, you made coronations seem (laughs) (laughs) deeply important and powerful. Beating sacral heart of a kingdom. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But when you get to the Hanoverians. (laughs) It all goes tits up. (laughs) Well, yeah, it just... This is, there's just a series of, I mean, one of them is actually very good. I think George II. Yeah. Um, the, the others are, are ludicrous in all kinds of entertaining ways. There's a sense in which they don't understand really what's going on, isn't there? Yeah. Well, George I literally doesn't understand what's <laughs> yes. going on because he is, he's German and he doesn't really speak English. So basically, um, he had become king on the 1st of August, 1714, because that's when Queen Anne had died. And that had been preceded by all kinds of political jostling. Are the Hanoverians going to come in? You know, is it more important to have uh, a, a very remote Protestant relative than to go to the Catholic Stuarts, the sort of Jacobites? They basically decide, fine, we'll get uh, George over. He pitches up in September, and then he's crowned in October. So because he doesn't speak any English, they agree that they'll go back to doing it in Latin. 
so that actually he will have some vague sense of, of what is going on. And so this is the first time since Elizabeth, isn't it? Since Elizabeth, exactly. Um, what's slightly shambolic is that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Tennyson, he's 78 and he's completely doddery and inept. <laughs> so adding to the fun. Everything goes wrong. A bit like what we talked about, James I came down from Scotland. Huge security because people are worried about ructions. So there's huge security this time. And actually, the bishops of Bath and Wells and Durham, who you talked about, I think, in the first or second yes, episode, yeah. has always been key figures. They, they're they not able to get to the king's canopy where he's meant to be because there's too many soldiers <laughs> oh, around who sort of what? push them out of the way and stuff. What would St. So, Dunstan say? Well, St. Dunstan would not be impressed. No. Um, there's a point at which, actually, it's, it's the last coronation in which the Archbishop of Canterbury asks the congregation, sort of formulaically, do you accept this man as your new king. And one of the people there is uh, a woman called Catherine Sedley, who is the former mistress of James II. And she's renowned as a great wit. And she says, when the archbishop asks this question, she apparently said in a very loud voice, does that old fool think that anyone here will say no to his question when there are so many drawn swords? Mm. So it's very much a sort of um, cross between a coronation, a kind of armed camp. And actually the drawn swords are completely understandable because this is the year of the great coronation riots. So in at least 20 towns um, across England, largely in the south and the west. So in other words, those parts of the country that actually had been pretty royalist in the Civil War, if you look at the map. Yeah. Um, the, the coronation day sees tremendous riots by sort of Tory mobs. It's fair to say. If right. you can imagine a Tory mob, high church mobs, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> so I know we have a lot of vicars and, and people of the cloth who listen to this podcast drawn by your work on Christianity. And we also have at least one listener to this podcast who lambasts us on Twitter whenever he suspects us of wiggery or of low church sentiments or, you know, any tolerance of dissent or any of these kinds of things. So they would, they would have been out rioting. They absolutely would have been saying. out rioting because. There had recently been a huge hullabaloo, one of the great political controversies in all British history, about a man called Henry Sacheverell, who had given this sermon in which he dissed dissenters and low church people, and he'd mm. been impeached by the House of Commons. And this had been the single biggest issue in the general election of 1710. <laughs> great days. Great days. <laughs> great, great days. days. <laughs> so the mobs pour onto the streets on Coronation Day in Bristol. They shout, Sir Cheverell and the Duke of Ormond and damn all foreigners. Great slogans. In Taunton, Church and Dr. Sir Cheverell. In Birmingham, Tom, I know you're an Aston Villa supporter, they chant, kill the old rogue, by which they mean George I, kill them all, Sir Cheverell forever. <laughs> In Tewkesbury, Sir Cheverell forever, down with the roundheads. And all this sort of stuff. So there's, there's a lot of trouble. There's not enough troops to kind of suppress it. So the mobs kind of rage, rampage, unchecked. But that's a, that's a good coronation tradition. Um, going back at least to the time of William the Conqueror. You'd like to, well, yes. That's, well, and, except in William the Conqueror, the mob, I mean, there are lots of soldiers who do a lot of damage, yes. aren't there? Yeah, I mean, every side could join. Because presumably there are people who are very keen on George I as well. Wigs. Yes. Uh, you know, he's saving Britain from the maxims of French tyranny and the principles of popish superstition. I suppose. So there's also the whole uh, issue of maypoles. So the maypole is regarded by this point as a sort of a symbol of Jacobitism, of incipient Jacobitism. That's a great shame, isn't it? Uh, because, because it should be a symbol of Merry England. Well, you see, this is the thing. It's seen as a symbol of Merry England. And people say, oh, the Roundheads hated maypoles in the 1650s. And the Whigs, if they're not challenged, they will eventually get rid of Maypoles. And George I is merely a Trojan horse for anti-Maypolism. It's for anti-fun. 
Exactly. Exactly. So people are still shouting and rampaging about and in Bedford, they actually dress the Maypole in mourning in black. I, you know, I love Hanoverian England. Yeah, all of this stuff. Well, it's all these memories of the of the Civil War. Yeah. I mean, the fact that people are going and rioting, shouting about high church forever. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I liked about George the First, as someone who's recently become a Scottish landowner. Yeah. Inherited this tiny little place outside Berwick-on-Tweed. I'm glad you described it, because whenever you say you've become a Scottish landowner, <laughs> I imagine a lot of people unsubscribing <laughs> own, yes. in horror. Owning Ben Nevis or something. No, it's a little it's a little crofter's cottage on the banks of the Tweed. Um, and um, he was crowned as king of the kingdoms of England, Scotland, Ireland and France, the Dominion yeah. of Wales and the town of Berwick-upon-Tweed. It's a separate entity. It's a separate entity. Very yes. good. Very so good. That's good. So... Um, this rioting, actually, it, it then flares up again in 1715, a year later at the general election, which is won by the Whigs, and they then pass the Riot Act. So the phrase that's ah, very okay. common. Okay, so read the in, Riot Act. To read the Riot yes. Act is that the troops would read it out, or somebody, a magistrate or whatever, would read it out to people if they don't disperse. Well, there you go. Then the you Whigs be, stopping, yeah. stopping innocent people from having fun. Cracking down by rioting. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's George I's coronation. The coronation itself is a slight, it's not that exciting compared with the rioting. George II's coronation, 17... That's splendid, isn't it? Because that's the handle one. That's, that's the, the handle the priest one. one. Exactly, exactly. So George II's coronation, I think, is actually a real high point of coronations. It actually goes well. Nothing goes chaotically wrong. Doesn't his queen wear a spectacularly ornamented dress? She does with jewels. With so jewels. many jewels that they have to lift her up by a pulley when she kneels down. Yeah. So she's kind of weighed down by the weight of rubies or whatever. It'd be nice to see that at the Kings, wouldn't it? it that would well, very much answer the critics. Of- she's also given, we know that her, her mistress of the robes had a handkerchief to wipe off any oil that might fall on, fall on her face. So that suggests to me that at this point in the anointing, they're slightly more concerned about its yeah. sartorial <laughs> implications yeah. than they are about the sacral quality. Well, because it must be really difficult, because essentially as Protestants, who are also uh, very, you know, the spirit of enlightenment is going on. It's yeah. all that kind of thing. I mean, it must be very weird that these rituals are still carrying, still being done. So. Also, there's a lot of German blood in this coronation, and they're very practical people, the Germans. They are, aren't hence they? Hence the provision of handkerchiefs. Also, hence the provision, they're at this point putting aside seats in Westminster Abbey for people to sell wine and coffee during the... Um, <laughs> During the ceremony. And and do you think kind of portable toilets? There are toilets put aside and toilets will become an issue later in this podcast, Tom, you'll be pleased Excellent. to hear. Um, amazing. I'll tell you who's still around at this coronation and gets a laugh from the crowd. Uh, Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough. So yeah. the former favourite of, Queen, of Anne. Queen Anne. yeah. She's still around. The procession goes on a very long time and it's very boring, apparently. So she took a drum from uh, one Did of the drummers up? and sat on it. Uh, and uh, people said, oh, that's the wife of the Duke of Marlborough. And they all cheered and laughed and thought he this was hilarious. He would have enjoyed that, wouldn't he? He would, yeah. And there, <laughs> Sarah Churchill, her elegant duchessal posterior. Exactly. So we know that, that actually this was an impressive occasion because there was a, a Swiss traveller called César de Soucieux, and he went to a lot of this and reported on it. And he How said, come? That- Did he buy a ticket? Are they selling tickets? Well, they do sell tickets. They sell tickets right. to the banquet. Oh, but not to the not to the ceremony in the Abbey. No, not to the ceremony. He was very impressed by the banquet. He said the chandeliers were very good. So there's a hereditary champion. We haven't talked about the king's champion. The champion always comes in on horseback during the banquet in full mm. armour. And this Swiss fellow was ab- thought this was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> well, it would be, wouldn't it? I'm amazed that Charles hasn't brought that back. Yeah, that would be fantastic. He loves a retro stunt, doesn't he? Charles is very keen on the music. And this is the musical coronation because yes. Handel, who'd been brought over under George I, 
uh, one of the George the First's last bits of legislation was an act to naturalise Handel as a British citizen. So Handel is given the job of writing the music. He has four weeks to do it, and he writes Zadok the Priest, which is the Champions League anthem or yep. the uh, genesis thereof that we started our series with. Um, and everybody immediately thinks it's brilliant. The only thing that goes wrong is that they actually at the coronation, the choir sang Zadok the Priest at the wrong point. They'd got in a terrible muddle with it and they'd sung the wrong words at one point yeah. and th- done some anthem and forgotten to do the end. So they sing this at the wrong point. But apart from that, it's brilliant. Wasn't there a problem with the choir boys as well, that their voices kept breaking in the rehearsals? They, ah, ah. Oh, no. So they had to cut, you know, kind of hurling fresh choir boys in to take right. their places. Right. So, but, but the sense I get is that it's a kind of cycle of shambolic expertly organized shambolic expertly organized and so it goes on well i think we've got two shambolics in a row actually george the third is george the third is an idea an absolute idea well george the fourth is pretty bad george the third is an idea so they they set up 1761 they're learning from what is it about 30 years just over 30 years since his uh since the george ii's coronation they do the same you know they're going to have a big banquet in westminster hall they've got partitions they've got they've got um, a sluice, uh, and I quote, for the reception of urinary discharges. <laughs> um, <laughs> they've got, they, they sort out galleries and stuff in Westminster Abbey. However, everything else is rubbish and totally shambolically and disastrously organized. So to start with, crowds are too big and there are too many people trying to get to Westminster Abbey in carriages and there's a carriage jam outside right. Westminster Abbey. So they can't, People can't get into the Abbey. Everything is massively delayed. They finally get into the Abbey, and the person who is organising it, who is, what's his name? The Earl of Effingham, I think it is, or something of Effingham. <laughs> he, the aptly named, yeah. he's forgotten loads of the stuff. He's forgotten the thrones, hasn't he? He's forgotten, yeah, there's no chair, nowhere for the king and queen to sit. He's forgotten the sword of state, so they have to borrow the, a sword, a random sword from the Lord Mayor of London. Yeah. There's none of the canopy. The canopy is a big deal for people in 18th century coronations. They've forgotten the canopy, so they have to sort of try and cobble something together with a bit of cloth and some sticks. Yeah. So this obviously looks <laughs> awful. It looks rubbish. Yeah. yeah, The crowds are so thick. They're sort of pressing down. There's not enough troops to hold back the crowds. So um, the troops are having to beat back the crowds with the flats of their swords and the butts of their muskets. Mm. So this is obviously not very, um, you know, it's not the sort of spirit of jollity. Sacral. It's, not very, it's not sacral at no. all. I mean, if they've forgotten the thrones is ludicrous behavior. Yeah. Um, all the spectators who write accounts. So whereas the Swiss fellow said, brilliant, 1727, people now say they talk of all was confusion, irregularity, and disorder. There's a lawyer, isn't there? William Hickey. Oh, right. Yes. It's William Hickey there. Yeah. Who gives his account of the anointing. Yeah. It's very funny. As many thousands were out of the possibility of hearing a single syllable, they took that opportunity to eat their meal when the general <laughs> clattering of knives, forks, plates and glasses oh, yeah. that ensued produced a most ridiculous effect and a universal <laughs> bout of laughter followed. That's right. They've all got they've all brought in picnics. People have all I think in. this reflects very well on Hanoverian Britain. On pies and stuff. Well it's in they're either rioting or picnicking. I mean that's exactly <laughs> how I think of the eighteenth century. Um they keep having to stop because nobody knows what's meant to happen. <laughs> what to so, do. So at one point, the king's meant to take communion, and he doesn't know whether he should wear his crown or not. But they obviously haven't been rehearsing enough. No, they've done no rehearsal. So here's where you've got a toilet issue. They've set up a special toilet, which they call the retiring chamber, 
for the queen to use behind the high altar in St. Edward's <laughs> Chapel. <laughs> when she gets what goes there, wrong? she gets, she, she just, she sneaks off to go to the loo. <laughs> when she gets there, she finds the Duke of Newcastle. <laughs> It's like a man who's using the ladies, you know, that kind of, the Duke of Newcastle has taken advantage. Self-identifying for a few minutes. <laughs> right. And is sitting and is seated on the clothes stool, as they call it, which must be a very unpalatable sight in the, uh, in the middle of a coronation. Especially if he's eating a pie at the same time. <laughs> right. Sound of cutlery, meanwhile, and people laughing. So, um, that's great. The whole thing takes six hours. And by the time they get out, it's taken so long that it's all, it's dark. On the way back, the king complains to um, this bloke Effingham and says, "This was this was awful. disaster. This was my big day. It's been a disaster." And Effingham says to him, "You know, I grant you there has been some neglect, but he says the good news is we've learned lessons, and the next coronation will be really well organised." That's what you want. Isn't and George III apparently found this highly amusing, and he went. Well, he, he went back and had um, bread and milk with his with his wife, didn't he? Well, actually, the coronation banquet, Tom. Is if that's a, a shambles, the coronation banquet is possibly even worse. So to start with, they light this by these linen tapers, and the linen tapers shower the guests with ash. <laughs> so everybody is covered in ash. Um, the organisation they've got, they've got the thing is organised by a bloke called William Talbot, who's the Lord Steward, and he, as I read, is was noted for his swaggering manners and rude. <laughs> <laughs> demeanor and he's forgotten to put in enough tables <laughs> so there's two groups the barons of the sink ports and the aldermen of the city of london and there's no seats for them at all the aldermen are given the table of the knights of the bath and they're kicked out the um the, the barons of the sink ports have no table at all and they're told they just have to I hate they riot no uh they're only silenced when this bloke william talbot challenges them to a duel <laughs> excellent <laughs> so meanwhile he has trained his horse he, he's got a party trick he's trained his horse to walk backwards away from the king as a, as a sign of <laughs> right. you know, respect like a sort of <laughs> yeah like a persian vizier yeah, yeah. you know retreating from his sovereign but the horse gets it wrong and keeps backing, keeps backing towards the king. And whenever they put that, <laughs> so showing the king his ass and presumably dumping. Whenever they shove the horse out, they manage to get the horse out of Westminster Hall. The horse keeps forcing its way back in and backing Arse towards first. the king. Exactly. Oh, it sounds great. So it finally ends at uh, ten o'clock, and the banquet ends. And actually, what happens here? It's not unique to 1761. It happens at almost all of these banquets. As soon as it ends, the tradition is that the public can then have whatever is left. So there are people outside and in the galleries who are poised, waiting for the last guest to leave. So like the soon- Christmas sales. And, right. <laughs> but their faces pressed to the glass, kind of. Yeah. And as soon as that happens, it's up, all up for grabs and they pile in. So they pile in and they take everything. They'll take the tablecloths, they take chairs, they take plates. And, you know, this sort of mob storming <laughs> off with all this stuff. And because it's regarded as traditional, you know, nobody wants to be the pe- person who stops it. So it continues. Now, do you think we have time for, for George IV before the break? We probably yes, I think we absolutely do. Uh, just one note. Yes. Um, did you read the thing about um, Bonnie Prince Charlie perhaps coming? I didn't. Surely he would not have been welcome. Well, he, apparently he attended the coronation under the pseudonym of Mr. Brown. Did he? And he spoke to someone in the uh, in the audience and um, said he wouldn't want to be crowned for for anything. Looks a terrible business. Really, it was reported in a newspaper. Yeah, it's easy for him to say that once he's lost, <laughs> though, isn't it? I mean, yeah, ye National Enquirer. Yeah, I never wanted it anyway. Yeah. I mean, that, 
Yeah, so let's do George the Fourth. So we so um his entry into the Abbey, that's what I um I read at the start rolling of this in. episode, rolling in and looking like a gorgeous bird of the East. I mean, he's all about the bling, isn't he? Yeah, he is. So this I said I said George the Third was an idea, but I don't think now I I'm reconsidering that because I think George the Fourth is pretty bad. So first of all, George the Fourth, his coronation actually is postponed because of his marital difficulties. Mm. So it was meant to be August eighteen twenty. It gets put off by almost a year because he wants to get rid of his wife, Carolina Brunswick, who he accused of never changing her underwear in all the time he um he was married to her. So I think it's fair to say that they both behaved pretty badly, didn't they? Yeah. George and Carolina Brunswick. They just just absolutely despised each other. To George's credit, yeah. he's a great antiquarian. So that's the kind of interesting thing. Is I suppose it's a way of elbowing the Stuarts aside, going back to the medieval coronation. Well, so there's kind of spirit of antiquarianism. Absolutely. absolutely. And he's, he's all about resurrecting medieval and Elizabethan looks, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. He basically says everybody must dress as an Elizabethan. So it's the first ersatz coronation. It is. It's the first one. Well, this is, we, we've probably got about as far from the sacral now as we can ever <laughs> yeah. get. Because like he says, let's do, let's do it fancy dress. <laughs> That's all. Um, so, yes, but he insists that everybody has to, else has to pay for their own fancy dress. Whereas he expects the country to, to pay, pay for his, to pay for his, because he's dressing as Napoleon, right? Well, he's dressing. I mean, if you look at his his garb, he's yeah, he looks absolutely preposterous. And actually, you mentioned Napoleon, so French war reparations uh, actually foot a lot of the bill for this. So I worked out the cost; it was two hundred and thirty eight thousand pounds. In terms of as a proportion of kind of GDP and whatnot in today's money, that would be about one point three billion pounds, billion. So this is a the, the coronation to end all coronations. It's the biggest blowout. Now he's desperate to, that his wife is not allowed to to take part. The legislation to divorce her, kick her out, has run into trouble because the Whigs have decided it's the Whig Victoria again. The Whigs have decided to take her side because they despise George and they despise the Prime Minister Lord Liverpool. So Caroline does show up on the big day. She shows up with her Chamberlain Lord Hood. She has written, Lord Hood has written and says she's going to come. Uh, Lord Howard, who's running the show, has written back and said, you know. So is this another Effingham? Um, he's a part of the family, exactly. Yeah. Part of the sort of Norfolk clan. Because mm. the, the, the Duke of Norfolk is never allowed to preside over this because he's Catholic. So he always has to delegate it to some member of his extended family. Well, she pitches up anyway. She arrives on the um, big day at six o'clock in the morning at Westminster Hall. There's a lot of people in the crowd who support her. There are soldiers guarding Westminster Hall who um, don't let her in. The commander of the guard says, you, you can't come in without a ticket. She says, I'm the queen. I don't need a ticket. No, no good. She's eventually turned away after trying various doors. And then she and Lord Hood eventually go down to Westminster Abbey. George IV has hired a load of boxers to act as doorkeepers. <laughs> so one of these boxers says to her, I'm not admitting, you know, you haven't got a ticket, love. You're not coming in. And eventually, surrounded by soldiers with bayonets, she is turned away while the crowds shout, shame, shame. And of course, Tom, as you will know, so she's turned away from her husband's coronation. She dies two yeah, she weeks does. later. Yeah. So a very poignant scene. I mean, actually, this would make a great film. I was thinking this, yeah. I mean, it's an amazing I mean, story. Actually, the, the coronation of George III, I was thinking, would make a great comedy. Yeah. But this would make a great tragic comedy. It would. It would. Actually, probably just a comedy. Although there are very comic elements. So... George IV now arrives at his coronation. She's gone. He arrives and he's wearing this massive costume. 
<laughs> you know, as you said, it's very Napoleonic, sort of huge, huge cloak and stuff. And he is, it's a very warm day and he's sweating. I mean, he's, he's a lot, he's a gentleman of size, isn't he? Yeah. What is he like 60 inch waist or yeah. <laughs> whatever it is. Who's your fat friend? He is yeah. soaked in sweat. And he actually said to somebody afterwards, I would not endure again the sufferings of that day for another kingdom. The actual content of the service, unlike the Elizabethan or the Stuart period, is pretty fixed at this point. There's no controversy about the content. And the arrangements go all right, but the choir go out first because of some sort of, I don't know, some communications breakdown. So as the king processes out, he has to go past all these empty benches, which are covered with the choir's litter. So presumably the choir had been... (laughs) Themselves smoking, yeah, pies and sandwiches or whatever. (laughs) The procession to the banquet is a shambles because a very strange thing is the barons of the sink ports, again, always causing trouble. Some they're allowed this time and they've got seats, they've got a canopy that they're meant to hold over George. But George is very keen to be seen by the public, so he he tries to he walks very fast. So to right. get out from under the canopy. So the poor wardens of the sink ports are scurrying they start, after him. They start com- walking fast too, and, and they're described, because they're, they're trying to outpace each other, one of the spectators said, it ended up with them making a somewhat unseemly jog towards, <laughs> the, towards the banquet. They get into the banquet. Now, they've learned their lesson from the linen tapers last time. What they put now is they've got massive wax candles and chandeliers. But because it's such a hot day, the candles melt. So all the people oh, sitting lovely. underneath, they're being hit by get wax. Dripped. Wax is dripping on them. There's more horse action in this one. Um, The Lord High Steward is the Marquis of Anglesey. Now, as as the Lord High Steward, he is required to ride into the banquet and reveal the first dish on the table. Um, Unfortunately, he is the Marquis of Anglesey who lost his leg at the Battle of Waterloo. And he's wearing a prosthetic leg and he can't get off his horse unaided. So it's a shambles. Pages have to come and like try to... (laughs) unscrew his leg and get him off his horse and everybody starts laughing and it ruins the atmosphere i think it's fair to carry on coronation once again uh the king leaves at eight o'clock um he goes off banquet continues a little while once the guests are gone the, the crowd pour in um this time the rioting and stuff is much worse than ever so the soldiers fighting the crowd over the remains of chicken legs and smashed plates and all this kind of thing and it doesn't the all this isn't dispelled until about three o'clock in the morning um and the last anyone sees is some of sort of george the fourth's cronies who have drunk far too much having to be carried to their coaches so it's not it doesn't show britain at its best so dominic you you asked me in the previous episode which coronation would i most like to have seen i would definitely like to have seen that one yeah i think that's my top coronation (laughs) Well, it's a lot better than the, the, so the next coronation with which we'll go in. Oh, we we don't want that one. Come back and we'll do the most boring coronation of all time. Most boring coronation of all time. So there's a a tempting offer for you. That is a tempting offer. All right, we'll see you after the break for that. Then at the close of that solemn rite, they both put on their crowns and take their scepters in their hands while neither of them frowns. Then robed in purple and velvet, They prepare to take their departure. The queen goes first, and the king follows after. Then the king entered his beautiful coach. The sides were made of glass, especially made so that his subjects might see him pass. And he seated himself by his queen, most lovely and gay. Then the royal coach was driven by eight beautiful bays away. And the people cried, Long live King Edward and his beautiful queen, declaring such a sight they had never seen, and which they would remember for many a day because they had seen their king and queen on coronation day. And that, uh, Dominic, 
is um, by very much friend of the show, William McGonagall, Scotland's greatest poet, on the coronation of King Edward VII. Oh. And um, in the first half, we were listening to the the pie consumption, the toilets in Westminster Abbey, horses' asses, people falling over left, right, and centre, uh, all tremendous carry-on. Yeah. Um, but from now on, coronations, they, they become more earnest, don't they? They definitely become more earnest. Deliberately so. And after George I, he succeeded by his brother, William IV, who yeah. has absolutely no interest in or understanding of coronations whatsoever to the degree that he doesn't really want one at all. He would have listened to your very first episode in this series, Tom, in, in bewilderment and horror at the yes. talk of the sacral nature well, because he's a bluff sailor. He is a bluff sailor. So he wouldn't have had any of that. He was not a man for an abstract noun, I think it's fair to say. He uh, didn't want a coronation. He was told he had to have one. His coronation happens in the run-up to the Great Reform Act. So Britain is being convulsed by political Mm. controversy. And he's having to deal with that, the sort of battle between the Whigs and the Tories and popular unrest demanding parliamentary reform, all this stuff. And he says, listen, if we're going to have a coronation, I don't want any of the flummery. So the coronation banquet the king's champion on his horse, all of these splendid traditions. I despise them. I don't want them. And this is the point at which they're done away with. Um, So basically, the sort of spectacle is limited to some sort of gun salutes and a couple of small processions. He wears an admiral's uniform, because as you said, he's a sailor, uh, with a robe over the top. And the total cost is an eighth of George the Fourth's coronation. So, I mean, in, in, in some ways, it might as well not have happened. But Dominic, could I just read what he said um, about the moment where the crown was laid on his brow? Go for it. It was a great moment when I actually felt the crown descending upon me and touching my temples. I could not restrain a thrill, but not of joy, of awe, at the responsibilities Almighty God had been pleased to put upon me. So actually, the sacrality does come through at the end. So he it does. He sees the error of his ways. <laughs> well, yes, I stand corrected. Yeah. Um, so that said, it's a bit of a non-event, isn't it? His coronation. Yeah. yeah. And actually, even Queen Victoria, eighteen thirty-eight, so seven years later, her coronation is it's, still it's rubbish. So people often say, "Oh, coronations—they're all in you know, its all just Victorian flummery." But Queen it's Victoria's not. coronation wasn't really Victorian; it was still Hanoverian. Yeah, and the Hanoverians did did better coronations than the Victorians. Actually, I would say. Well, the Victorians only did one. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's very. But you true. know, but you know, the Victorian angle on this was that the um, there was no anointing of the queen's breasts. Yes, so I know you. I know you love this detail, Tom, which I find disturbing. <laughs> I just think it's. I mean, it's a kind of example of how the rituals evolve, isn't it? Right, Victorian prudery, I suppose. So the, the Victorian coronation again, it's a lot cheaper than George the Fourth's. Um, it's probably what are we looking at? It's about a quarter of the cost. Um, so it's more expensive than, than William the Fourth's, but it's still pretty cut price. They, it is the first coronation. It's a mass tourism event because of railways. Mm. So uh, probably up to about half a million people come down to London and there's fireworks displays and there's things going on in the parks and there's hot air balloons. And- I think that um, the people in workhouses are, are, are given beer to toast it. Are they? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Which is nice for them. That's not very Victorian, giving them beer, is it? Victorian no. would be encouraging them to work a little bit harder for <laughs> yes, <laughs> overnight or something. Yes. Um, sensibly, they have a break for sandwiches halfway through the coronation. I don't think the king will be doing that uh, at his own coronation. So, the, And sandwiches are laid out on the altar, Tom, which yes. seems very uh, unsacral behavior. Yeah. Uh, again, people say oh, it wasn't very well rehearsed. Um, witnesses say nobody knew what they were doing. Disraeli, who was there as a young MP, said 
all those involved were always in doubt as to what came next, and you saw the want of rehearsal. <laughs> and the Archbishop of Canterbury um, wedged the ring very painfully onto Victoria's finger. Yes, made but on the wrong finger. Pain. But yeah. on the wrong finger. Yeah. The music was regarded, uh, one newspaper said, a strange medley of odd combinations, which doesn't sound very promising. Mm. Somebody fell, uh, the aptly named Lord, Lord Roll. <laughs> yes, um, he fell down the steps. He was he? 82. He <laughs> fell out down the steps. He rolled right down, in the words of Queen Victoria's diary. That's Hanoverian. That's the one touch there, isn't it? Well, he is a Hanoverian if he's 82. Yeah. Rolling down steps and things. And But generally, there's not enough chaos and... You know, there's not enough vulgarity at Victoria's. It's it's shambolic and under-rehearsed and a bit shabby. Yeah. And that's the reputation for kind of British state occasions, isn't it? That they at are that point. seen abroad as being not very good. And the whole idea that um, state occasions and royal occasions are what Britain does best is something that presumably kicks in due to the influence of the empire and the need to kind of you know, parades and jubilees and things. Although, interestingly, I read something today that some bloke who worked in Westminster Abbey for sort of, you know, 80 years or something was asked of the coronations of 1902, 1911, 1937, and 1953, which was the best. And he said, oh, there's absolutely no doubt about it. 1953 was by far the best. You know, far better organised, far more. You know, as time went on. Because it was on TV. So... The whole world would be watching it. The whole world would be watching. I mean, they couldn't have horses, asses, and people falling down <laughs> steps for that. No, they didn't do... They, well, they sort of do go in fancy dress, don't they? I mean, actually, nobody thinks that the fancy dress they're wearing... People think of it as... What people wear to coronations. Yeah, but a lot of this is thanks to George IV's ludicrous pantomime sense yes. of, of, of costume, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, 1902 is Edward VII, Edward the Caresser. He has his mistresses, doesn't he, in a box? He does indeed, and he also he's a very he's another very large man with with probably not a you know he's not a great man for sort of um, for dieting. I think it's fair to say, or not an abstemious man. And uh, he has an abdominal abscess just before the coronation, which means it has to be postponed. I think pretty much two days before the big day. So one consequence is they've got loads of things planned for the people, and they decide to go ahead and do them anyway. So there's a coronation dinner for the poor of London, Tom. They were going to serve 500,000 dinners to Londoners. Is um, that the one that the maids went to? I think it probably is. That we talked is. about in Downton Abbey episode. It must be. They yeah. gave out, um, every single person was given a tin of chocolate, round trees chocolate. But, get this, round trees had two different kinds of chocolate. Some for the poor people who were attending the, um, the dinner, and some for the people who were stewards helping the poor people. And the people who were stewards got better chocolate than mm. the diners because Rantry said they would be of greater influence socially than the poor. Well, at, at least they're being honest. Well, I suppose so. But the other consequence is that um, a lot of the European bigwigs who were meant to be coming to this coronation had to go home. They couldn't stay around for two months waiting for people to clear up their ab- yeah. abdominal abscesses. Yeah. So as a result, it became much more British and much more imperial than it would otherwise have been. Oh, that's interesting. Which is interesting. So is that what then kind of instituted the idea that a coronation should be an imperial occasion? I think it probably would have been a bit imperial anyway, but it's even more imperial. Yes. But I mean, that's the keynote, presumably for George V. I know nothing about George V's coronation. Yeah. But it, I mean, it is for George VI and definitely for Elizabeth II. Yeah. And for Edward VII and George V basically have the same coronation. You know, okay. Sikh troops, Field Marshal Lord Roberts, Lord <laughs> Kitchener, you know. But, but, but George V doesn't have his mistresses in a box. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Moustaches. And one nice, one nice thing, actually, about uh, Edward VII's coronation is um, he has the commanders of the Boers along oh, that's to watch a naval review. And they'd only just signed, 
the peace deal. So That's he has nice. Lewis Boater and these other characters. So they'd they'd literally only signed the the end the, the end of the war was only a sort of two months earlier. And he said, "Oh, mm. come to the coronation. It'd be a great laugh. You know, we can all be good friends." And did they have a good time? I think they did actually. I think yeah. they did. I mean, yeah. I don't think they go and they think. I don't think they think. Oh, we've been we're being dreadfully patronized and treated very badly. There's a sort of sense, oh, well, this is fair play. Well done. You know, yeah, hurrah, okay. for, hurrah for everybody. So he dies in uh, 1910, doesn't he? George V, one of my favorite people from all history, Tom. I know, Dominic. You know what he said when his father died? I've lost my best friend and the best of fathers. I never had a cross word with him in my life. I love George V. I'm assuming that his coronation is incredibly dull. <laughs> He's thinking about stamp collecting, I of imagine. course, and his creases in his trousers. <laughs> his wife Mary the way. has the Koh-i-Noor diamond in her crown. Mary, Queen Mary of Eck. Is, is it Tech? Tech. 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 Queen Mary of yeah. Tech. I thought you'd gone mad then, Tom. <laughs> so George V has this coronation. He says um, it was a terrible ordeal. He writes in his diary. It was grand yet simple and most dignified, and went without a hitch. He's. I love what I love about George V. It's not just that he's so boring. It's also that he's such a family man. He says, yeah. I nearly broke down when dear David came to do homage to me, as it reminded me so much of when I did the same thing to my beloved papa. So David is the future Edward VIII. Who is a very bad man. He's, he's a bounder. He's a cat and a bounder. So George IV enjoys it. He has a tremendous time. He says he's a bit tired at the end. And they must have had great coronation stamps. Brilliant so stamps. he must have loved that. So special edition stamps that he could then get for free. It's not the banquet of vulgarity with him. He could, do you know what he goes? What he does afterward the coronation for the rest of the day? Does he go and shoot loads of birds? No, he goes and answers his telegrams. <laughs> Excellent. But, yeah, but I should have guessed. Then he goes off to India for the Delhi Durbar, the Great Durbar. Yes, which I suppose is, is a kind of coronation, isn't it? It is. He wears. Well, they have to, none of the crown jewels are allowed to leave the United Kingdom. Fortunately, however, India is full of jewels. Right. Yes. That have a habit of finding their way into, Indian crowns, <laughs> into British crowns. It's completely reasonable for Indian crowns to come to Britain, but obviously not vice versa. Of course. So a special imperial crown of India is made for him, and he goes off to uh, Delhi with it. So Coronation Park in Delhi, about 60,000 people turn up. He and Mary of Tech are seated on thrones in their full gear. He says in his diary, I mean, it's the most amazing thing. It's the most extraordinary extraordinary ritual probably in british history that this incredibly boring man who loves his stamps and worries about shooting birds and creasing his trousers is sitting on a throne while thousands of indian dignitaries are queuing up to pay homage to him kind of princes and he says in his diary what he writes is rather tired after wearing my crown for three and a half hours it hurt my head as it is pretty heavy and that's all he has to say but the next day they go to the red fort uh, and he and Mary, they go out deliberately modelled on the Mughal emperors in a ceremony mm. modelled on the Mughal emperors to receive um, the, the, the salutes of half a million people who have come I to know. see them. And then he goes and shoots something like 20,000 pheasants or something. I knew that killing animals had to feature at some point. He writes in his diary, I think we went a bit too far today <laughs> or something like that. So actually... George the sixth coronation, I think, is quite boring. I don't want to be disrespectful, but he is quite boring. So he's the one. He's he's King's speech, father of the of Queen Elizabeth II, king during the Second World War, and he shouldn't have got it because this coronation has been explicitly arranged for his brother, dear David Edward the Eighth, who has deserted his post, Tom, to go off with mm. an American divorcee. Something yeah. that you know we don't approve of <laughs> on the rest of his history. Uh, he's gone off. It's a bit, this is a very big empire 
and dominions kind of coronation. So the prime ministers from all the dominions are present for the first time in the procession. Once again, you've got tons of contingents of kind of Indian troops, Canadians, yeah. Australians, all of this kind of stuff. Tom, you're yawning even while yeah, I'm... Sorry, <laughs> I thought of it is making me bored. Um, so first, radio coronation. So he gives an address. This is your Lionel Logue, Jeffrey yeah, Rush in the film. Of course, of course. Don't stammer, all this stuff. Uh, the BBC do film and, well, televise the procession. I mean, nobody has a television, so I don't know who's actually watching. It's sort of 15 people in, in Surrey or something. Oh, look, there's me. So, exactly, in the procession. Have you seen it? No. Have you seen it? No, of course not. I couldn't be less interested in it. Golly, Tom, you're really... Uh... I th- George VI's coronation, I think, of all the things we've done throughout, across all the entire sweep and span of what? our podcast, what? is the single most boring thing <laughs> that I can think of. Don't you think? No. Can you think of anything more boring? I've, yes. What? Yes. We recorded an episode that we never put out because it was so boring. It was so boring that while we were doing it, I booked a holiday. <laughs> okay, yes, I know exactly. Do you remember the episode? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. That was worse than this. Okay, but that, that hasn't gone out. Whereas no. this, I'm assuming, is going out. And if, <laughs> so I put, anyway, listen, make it interesting for the listeners. Uh, Second World War is just <laughs> storm clouds overhead. Storm, uh, storm clouds are building. Meanwhile, yes. in Germany. Uh, <laughs> Herr Hitler. Yeah, yes, exactly. There you go. Done. Elizabeth II, 1953. Filmed in 3D, Tom. Did you know mm. that? Did you know it was filmed in 3D? No, no, that is interesting. I once did. I was a talking head on a Channel 4 documentary called The Coronation in 3D. And what I was required to do um, was to go down and they kept saying, now, we, can you answer this question by explaining why it's really appropriate that Elizabeth II was filmed in 3D in 1953. It's very hard to, it's very hard to answer that. <laughs> Such a... But the, um, the, the, the most popular member of the procession was the Queen of Tonga. So it rained, famously it rained on the coronation day in 1953. It's a very, it's a kind of miserable occasion because it's post-war. Britain is only just coming out of the long period of post-war austerity. Um, so it's kind of grayness to London and a grayness to the proceedings, I would say. And it starts raining. And, and in Tonga, if you are somebody's guest, it is regarded as impolite to imitate them in any way. So right. all the carriages put up their hoods. And to, so she didn't. And she doesn't. And so the crowd can see her. The crowd can see her. And they think, she, I mean, because, because she's quite large and because she's kind of quite jolly. Yeah. The crowd will start she- waving and laughing. And everybody says, oh, the Queen of Tonga, what a tremendous person. And she is the great star. Yeah, because she's the only person who goes to that that I can re- I know anything about. Or, well, Churchill went. And you know about See, I, I didn't know that Churchill went. Of course he, I mean, I assume he went, but I don't know anything he did there. Uh, he just, you know, wiped uh, away. Yeah, he wiped away tears at the spectacle of a radiant a young queen. Elizabethan age. Exactly. Nehru went to that uh, coronation. That's yeah, nice. Nehru went. Um, but you're right. It's, it's actually a surprisingly dull occasion, though it's really livened up by Everest. So it's on the morning of the coronation that the news reaches Britain that Sir Edmund Hillary and uh, Tenzing Norgay, brought by James Morris, who will who shortly later, become Jan Morris. Exactly so, yeah. Tom, broken in the Times by James, later Jan Morris. And we'll be doing an episode writer. on that. And we will be doing an episode about the conquest of Everest. So in the newspapers in Britain, there is this sort of enormous outpouring of patriotic sentiment. Oh, my gosh. You know, I mean, Sir Edmund Hillary, actually, he's not actually British, but he's treated in the newspapers as though he, I mean, he's New Zealand, so he might as well be British. Mm. And um, and everybody says, oh, hurrah, hurrah, we're top nation once again, and all this sort of carry on. 
The other thing is, of course, TV. Let's say 25 million people watched it on TV. And yet there are only about two to three million televisions in Britain. So people are literally cramming into their neighbors' houses to watch. And it's the, it's the single biggest, most important moment in the ma- massive take-up of television in uh, 1950s Britain. You know, because people are desperate to, to see this sort of m- this, this extraordinary spectacle through the miracle of television, Tom. Yes. Uh, and of course, still then um, a largely Christian country deferential towards authority. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely true. Yeah. Not much of a Republican movement then. I mean, literally, you could probably fit it in a phone box. There are lots of people who are maybe indifferent to the monarchy or even people who are, think, well, I don't really like them, but there's no organized Republican movement right. any, worthy of the name. So quite different circumstances to today's coronation. I think the Republican movement, you could still pretty much fit in a phone box. It's about a quarter of the population. No, yeah. but that's not the same as a uh, Republican movement though, is it? That's no. I was thinking people who 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 regard the whole thing with contempt and you know flummery and mumbo jumbo and yeah. Why are we paying for this nonsense? Maybe about a quarter of the population. Um, I think but it's just it's just you know we've been um, in the first episode looking at how these rituals have long sustained a kind of deep meaning, and yeah. even over the course of the past few hundred years, where that meaning has been misunderstood or you know misinterpreted or occluded or whatever it's still been there and it was obviously incredibly important for the queen you know she devoutly believed that it had been a sacramental moment yes a bit like elizabeth the first you know she'd been married to her nation all that kind of thing yeah um i think that what's interesting about the uh, operation orb it's called isn't it the uh, charles's coronation is that probably most people will view it as a, a either with indifference they won't bother with it at all mm-hmm. or they'll watch it as a spectacle yeah or they will be radically infuriated by the whole spectacle. Yeah. Or they will be very excited by um, the very sacral quality of this coronation. I'm, I'm Tom. The group that I'm that, I, that I'm <laughs> least persuaded by is the people who, like you, are, uh, are convinced of the sacrality of the uh, of the occasion. I think there's an awful lot of people, probably a majority, who enjoy a spectacle. I, I, I completely agree, and I think it's always been that way. But yeah. the, the fact remains that it is. A sacral occasion. It, it, you know, without that sacral occasion, there's no point in having it. Um, and people may ignore it, they may despise it, they may not even be aware of it, but yeah. it remains a religious service. Yeah. And that is, I think, a challenge in a country that is increasingly, you know, not, not Christian, not interested in religion at all. Because I think for the first time, it means that we have rituals surrounding the, the enthronement of our head of state that probably mean very little to the vast majority of people who are watching it, I would say. So I think, that's, that, I think that is something new. I would wonder deep down how much those rituals meant to lots of the people in those I crowds. Compl- no, in- I, I agree. I agree. But they, would, they, they might not understand the theology. They might not understand the scriptural references. They might not understand um, the precise significance of the ritual, but they yeah. would be aware that it was significant. Yeah. They would, if you asked people, I mean, even at kind of George III's or whatever, They'd say, does it matter that you have one? So the example of that is William IV, who... He's told he has to have one even if he doesn't want one. He's basically told he has to have one because he, he, he picks up a crown, doesn't he, or something, and yeah. puts it on his head and says, I've had a coronation, yeah. and gets told in no uncertain terms that you have to have it. But now I think people, lots of people would just be simply bewildered by what's going on. Mm, I, I, I think you spent too much time in uh, the Metropolitan Dinner Parties, Tom. You know, when I, when I tread the 
the streets of Middle England, I see people sobbing with joy at the thought of the coronation. <laughs> dusting down their bunting. Exactly, dusting down their bunting. Our next-door neighbour has bunting, actually. A, a, a note of hope. Yeah. Could I end the series by quoting a tweet oh. uh, by uh, Francis Young, who was... I know you like Francis Young. He came on our podcast to talk about the occult. He did. Um, Magic in Merlin's Realm. And he, he was very keen on all the occult significance of uh, pavements yeah. in Westminster Abbey and things. And he tweeted... The king seems to be going hard on the sacralization of monarchy. Oil consecrated in Jerusalem, the Cosmati pavement uncovered. So that's the one in um, Westminster Abbey. Yeah. Relics of the true cross. So they were given to him, to Charles, by the Pope. The St. Augustine Gospels. So they've come from, I think, Corpus Christi College, the oldest Gospels in, uh, in Britain. More privacy for the anointing. This is wild. <laughs> so that's... So... No, I think he's wrong. I'll tell you what I think is wild. Toilets being set up in chapels, sandwiches <laughs> laid out on the altar, horses yeah. coming in backwards, yeah, Sir Cheverell forever. So <laughs> I, I, I'm absolutely torn between excitement at the Cosmati pavement being uncovered, yeah, and disappointment that there isn't going to be a horse, right, um, backing if, up to the king and I, showing him his ass. If there's no high church riot in Taunton, <laughs> I shall be very disappointed. Well, you could organise one. I could. I could indeed. The great riot of Chipping Norton. Norton. Yeah. Get on with it. Right. So on that bombshell, uh, Tom, coronations have actually turned out to be much more interesting than I thought. Well, it's like the Olympics, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I compared them to the Olympics right at the beginning. Uh, and I remember when we finished the, doing the, the two episodes we did in the Olympics, we ended by saying, well, that was a lot more interesting than I thought it would be. It's good to end Rest of History episodes that way rather than end <laughs> the, the other way. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot worse than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thanks very much for listening. We hope that um, you have a good coronation, whether yeah. you are going to watch it or whether you're just bunking off or doing whatever you're doing. Um, yeah. Have fun. God bless the king. Do you say God bless the king? God, no, save, God the save the king. God save the king. May the king live forever. That's what people uh, say. Or, you know, on the revolution, if that's how you feel. Uh, we're, we're kind of, you know, we're open to all political persuasions here. Well, so uh, we? have a good time. Yes, right. of course we are. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.